There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. Welcome to Fear Feasts. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Ali. And we're your hosts. You all right, Davy? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, my God. Is that our house? Ali, I can't wait to hear what biblical quote you have for us today. Dear Vanessa, We've got another amazing hungry house story this time. And um, I just want to say that every morning and every evening, the priests present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread on the ceremonially clean table and light the lamps on the gold lampstand every evening. Have you guessed what we're about to look at today, fear well, feasters. If I have to be the one to, to spill the beans, I'm going to say we are going to be covering the book Burnt Offerings by Robert Marasco and the film of the same name starring Karen Black. And yes, we are in for quite an interesting ride with both the movie and the book. So that was a great yes. quote, by the way. Oh, did you like it? Mm -hmm. Do you feel more purified by it? I feel very purified now, especially because the whole concept of burnt offerings and fire, you know, fire being very cleansing. Yes, I, I personally feel very um, edified in my soul at this moment. <laughs> Amen, child. Amen. You know, this is, I was thinking about the title because I always do this with books. I read something or I watch a film and, I, and I, I'm so used to the title, even though it might not initially make sense to me when it comes yeah. to the story. And this is one of those times where I read everything. I watched the, the film a couple of times and then I'm like, hmm, burnt offerings. It's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Well, let's open the Bible. <laughs> I know. Well, and you know, what's interesting about it is that, you know, the whole concept of a burnt offering. That's why I thought the title itself was so fascinating is because, you know, the, the concept of a burnt offering indicates sacrifice of some sort, usually human, yes. mostly animal, that kind of thing. And there isn't any actual burning in either the movie or the film. There's a, a reference to burning toward the end where the main character um, references that she wants to burn the thoughts of the house out of her head. But beyond that, there's no there's nothing about anything burning or being cleansed at all. So, uh, yeah, I mean, did you want to, do you want to be the one to give the synopsis? I think I'll let you do it this time, because I have to say that you introduced me to the book and the film and not only that you gifted me the book so thank you very much and I'll let you do the synopsis because of okay that. excellent so like you said the book and the and the movie follow each other quite closely the it's basically the story about the uh the Allardyce no no excuse me the Rolf family so there's Mary and Rolf who uh in the book is extremely OCD about cleanliness she's uh she's she's a little bit crazy uh, as, as as all characters likely would be under the, in these circumstances. Um, she's married to her husband, who's named Ben. They have their aunt, what is her name again? Aunt Elizabeth. She's, yes, she's aunt a Elizabeth. big part of their family unit as well. And then they have their son, David. So they essentially go out to the country to look at this house that they've heard is for rent for the summer. They cannot stand living in the city another another summer. It's hot, it's noisy in their little apartment. And Marion is a total clean freak. So she's basically harangued her husband into going out to the country to stay at this house. So they come across this 
huge mansion. It's a little bit run down. It's not in the greatest of shape. And it's owned by the Allardyce family. It's the brother and the sister. And they are very strange. Uh, they are some weird people, a brother and a sister. And so they take a liking to the to the Rolf family, Marion in particular. They basically offer to let them rent the house for, I believe it's $700 for the entire summer, which I mean, that back then that was super inexpensive. I mean, today that would be unheard of, but yeah. And they're in uh, upstate New York um, in, and this house is along a deck. It's got a pool. Like I said, it's very, very run down, but Marion falls in love with it immediately. So before the brother and the sister leave, they tell Marion, oh, there's only one other thing you really have to do other than, you know, kind of keep the house looking nice is leave trays of food for our mother. She's upstairs in the attic bedroom. She doesn't come out. She's quite elderly. All you have to do is leave her dinner, breakfast, lunch, and dinner trays and go pick them up and then cook for her for her next meal. And so, of course, Marion is like, oh, that's a little bit odd. And of course, her husband, who's much more, uh, much more, much more common sense in his head, thinks that's very odd because he says, well, that's a little bit scary. You know, you're wanting us to basically be responsible for the, the health and well-being of this elderly woman over the summer. You know, where are you guys going to be? And the brother and sister who are, who are pretty elderly themselves, and they have this very weird handyman. And they're like, oh, we'll be around. We'll, we'll drop in or we'll give you a call or something. You know, don't worry about it. Just just make sure mother has her three meals a day and, and cook for her. And that's it. So the summer progresses. Marion is in is in, in heaven. Her husband, Ben, he's been trying to write a novel. He's a, a, he's a professor. And their son, David, is, you know, is there enjoying, you know, the house and stuff like that. And then Aunt Elizabeth is there. She's a painter. So they have this little, like, happy family moment. In fact, there's a really cool moment with food when the four of them move in. And this is shown in both the movie and the and the book where they ra raid the refrigerator and the Allardyces have left them all of these bottles of champagne, a roast chicken, all of this marvelous, wonderful food. And Ben is, is very skeptical. He's like, what, what's going on with these people? This is a little too good to be true. So as the summer progresses, um, Marion continues to cook for Mrs. Allardyce and she starts to notice that things are improving in the house. Mm. Uh, like she'll find walls that were, that were kind of broken down that have been repaired. Um, the pump and the, the swimming pool, they couldn't use the pool because it wasn't working. They couldn't clean it. The pump starts working and the swimming pool begins to be pristine and beautiful and clean. Um, furniture starts to get repaired mysteriously. Um, windows start to be repaired. Cracks start to be repaired. And as time goes on, you realize that the house is sort of coming alive around them. It's responding to the energy of all four of the people in the house particularly that of Marion, because Marion is the sort of the caretaker, the caregiver, but it's sucking the energy out of Aunt Elizabeth. You know, she was this very energetic woman when she came with them and she deteriorates terribly throughout the movie and the book. And sadly, she ends up dying. Um, ben, the husband, it affects him mentally. He starts to have weird hallucinations about this terrifying uh, chauffeur in a limousine in a, he's, he's more of an undertaker really. Um, it's a memory he had from a child from childhood and he starts seeing this this terrifying specter of of a an undertaker slash chauffeur driving this huge black hearse everywhere he goes and in the movie this this chauffeur this that that scarred me for life i saw this movie i think when i was i don't know 11 or 12 and to this day i think about that chauffeur and i just shudder and yeah he's quite creepy he reminded me of the slender man a little bit he's yes quite tall. yes yeah. totally totally so 
And then David is, you know, David is a typical young man and he's growing up as well. And he wants to, you know, he wants to explore the house. He wants to touch things. And as time goes on, Marion becomes much more secretive and protective of, of Mrs. Allardyce on the third floor. She rebuffs her husband when he wants to meet her. She rebuffs her son. She rebuffs Aunt Elizabeth with these increasingly weak excuses. After Aunt Elizabeth dies, everything starts to really go downhill from there very quickly. Um, you know, as the book comes to an end, what happens is Ben tells Marion, you're going to have to make a choice. Me and David are not going to stay here. This, there's something going on with this house. It's not safe. I don't know what it is, but we aren't staying. If you want to stay, you can, but we're leaving. So in the, in the book, you know, and what ends up happening is Ben and David try to leave. And the house doesn't let them. It causes them to have a terrible uh, car accident. Ben is basically in a coma, can't do anything. So Marion has him sitting by the pool. And David is out swimming in the pool one afternoon. And the pool just starts to, like, push these huge waves up. Um, he tries to save his son. He can't. So he falls, bashes his head on the, on the stones of the pool, dies. David is drowned. Marion is left alone in the house. She goes upstairs to finally see Mrs. Allardyce. And the house essentially absorbs her, ingests her, takes her in. I mean, it's, you know, it's the ultimate meal. I, I think that's, talk about, a, talk about a final last supper. And in the, in the movie, what ends up happening is Marion decides that she's had enough. Once the house attacks her son in the pool, she's decided we're, gone, we're, we're leaving. So she tells her husband and son to pack up and then they're ready to go. She says, I'm gonna go check on Mrs. Allardyce one last time. And she goes upstairs to see how Mrs. Allardyce is, and we will talk about that ending further in the movie. But there you go. There's your yeah. there's your little uh, thumbnail sketch. Wow. That was quite a summary. I have so many questions. This is going to be a little bit like The Shining in that I think you're much more of an expert when it comes to this book and film than mm -hmm. I am. Um, the book was published in 1973, and the film came out in 1976. Mm-hmm. And um, this is an author that I didn't know very well. Do you, can you give us a bit of like background on other things that he's written? Um, because I think you were more familiar with his life, weren't you? Um, so Robert Morasco, th this is probably the book that he's most well known for. Mm. Uh, definitely, I think, you know, people, everybody of, of every generation probably either read, <laughs> read this book or saw the film. Um, so, what other things is he done? Okay, so another really famous screenplay yeah. wrote, it's called Child's Play. Child's Play, that was it, yeah. Yes, yes. But this book actually, um, he wrote another book called Parlor Games, which I've never read, but I understand it's it's quite good. But the, the thing about him is that what I think what he is probably the most well-known for specific to this book is that this book was a huge influence on Stephen King when Stephen King wrote The Shining, which we were just talking about the entire concept yes. of a house coming to life. You see that very, I mean, that's completely what the, the, what the theme is in this book. This house comes to life. It absorbs the energy and the lives of the people who live within it and it regenerates itself. But it also, yes. it also has its own kind of personality. It's very kind of playful at the beginning and then slowly turns into a malevolent force. And you definitely see that in uh, the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. So, you know, and I hadn't, I had actually never known that. I, I figured I, when I was re researching the book and the movie, I saw that this, this movie had been, a, and the book rather as well, had been a huge influence on Stephen King. So of course that made me love it even more because I absolutely love The Shining. It's, but it's, you know. And you know, when I, when I. Go ahead. Yeah, no, when I heard, I just wanted to say that when I heard about that and I read it in the introduction, 
um, to the, I think there's a new introduction uh, to the new, newly printed. Yes, uh, Stephen, book, and, Graham, um, Stephen Graham Jones. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think it's a great introduction. He's another and, very well-known horror author. Yeah. He's a very, one of those kind of modern, modern horror authors that are big now, like um, Grady mm. Hendrix, Paul Tremblay, yes. who we covered last season, Stephen Graham Jones, who we'll probably cover uh, later in our later when we cover slashers. I think we'll probably talk about his books. Okay. But yeah, he's a. Well, he's I wouldn't. Yeah, I wanted to say that mm -hmm. um, it gave me. It, I felt a little bit sad because I feel like, and not just because I don't know this book, because I think it's not as mainstream as obviously things that Stephen King has written, but the amount of influence that it has exerted on other authors. Um, it's probably a lot more than what we that he will ever have any credit for or be remembered at all. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and I've just found that a little bit sad. Mm -hmm. He kind of comes, he comes in 73 when The Shining comes out in 77, but he's in between The Haunting of Hill House, which is 59. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like his positioning is a little bit unlucky when it comes to visibility, but yeah. they're probably... He influenced a lot, a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this, this story and the plot reminded me of so many other stories, like even Get Out, even the Skeleton oh, Key, yeah. or the House of the Devil that we covered as well. Hereditary. Uh, the fact that there's an older person, you know, hidden at the top mm -hmm. floor, and that uh, in, an, in an old, big old house and yeah. things like that. The changeling of, of of the of the movie Hereditary, just the whole idea of this 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 family whatever you want to call it, this family curse being handed down generation after generation. I mean, mm -hmm. and it's like, it to me, it's like, it's a, it's a fantastic um, haunted house book and movie, but it also to me speaks very eloquently about the concept of generational trauma, which is something that yes. you see a lot more of in modern, modern horror, you know, hereditary, yes. get out movies like that. Um, and so I, it was a very much a precursor, I think, to that. And I, I definitely think that this book has been, a, like you said, a huge influence on a lot of these other these other similar types of films, even the even the movie The Skeleton Key, which yes. is sort of cheesy, but you know you've got yeah. that same. Concept no, no, here. yeah, I know. I mentioned that. No, I'm to mm -hmm. totally, totally reminded me mm -hmm. of that. But um, I think the the idea of the woman being in the house and somehow being the vessel through which food wise things are being fed out, and then they are in fact being fed themselves to the house mm -hmm. is something quite common. It reminded me of Rosemary's Baby a bit as well. Did it remind yeah. you of that? Yeah. Yeah, um, it did. Well, and you know, and I, I thought, I also thought, you know, just speaking and, and to, to tie it to the concept of food, which is, you know, the, the significant theme of, of our podcast, you know, to me, it, it's, it's very significant in the sense of the ingestion horror. And, and again, we talked about this with The Haunting of Hill House. We talked about this with The Shining, this concept of these human beings being the being the thing that is eaten and taken within the the belly of the beast so to speak but what's what what i thought what was interesting about the book and they don't show it as much in the movie but the book they get very much into the detail of marion cooking these meals for mrs allardyce and taking them up to the attic and leaving them and it's like her day completely revolves around mrs allardyce's breakfast lunch and dinner and mrs allardyce doesn't always eat her food and it's interesting, you start to see this pattern of when she does eat, it's when things start to happen in the house. And so Marion notices, oh, she there's a half of half of a coddled egg that was eaten. And there's a couple of bites of toast that have been taken out of this bread. And you could tell there's a few sips of tea. But as the book progresses, Marion herself in some kind of a state, obviously the house has started to take her over, 
she starts to eat those meals. So I thought that was really interesting foreshadowing of, of sort of the end of the book, it, you know, like her eating the meals that are meant for Mrs. Allardyce. She's the one who finishes the meal. She eats the wonderful chicken soup in the in the fancy tureen and she eats the chicken and eats the potatoes. And it's just it's so fascinating that while the while the house is slowly ingesting them, she herself is ingesting what is meant to keep Mrs. Allardyce alive. Uh, a wonderful it's a kind of irony. rebellion. It's a kind of rebellion against the role that she has as caregiver and provider of and kind of or probably not provider, but that that she prepares the food for everyone, and that she has to keep things ticking over. And in a domestic scenario, she is in charge, in fact. And you see this. And I just wanted to go back to the beginning because, as with most um, adaptations from book to film, we see that the beginning they are all driving to their destination, whereas the book normally starts where they are in another location, probably in their, another house, and. They, you know, they haven't even started packing to go to the to no. this terrible house where they, they're going to go. So they are in a small apartment. Well, um, I think she's got about three bedrooms in this apartment in Queens. It's just that it's very noisy. And um, her husband, Benjamin, is like really frustrated by someone who's playing the piano. And you can hear the noise outside. And they're quite frustrated at the fact that they're living in this place and it's cramped for them in the sense that you know it's just noisy and they want to get away they want to go somewhere different somewhere which is more peaceful and spend a nice summer and as you said you know they're, they're taking aunt elizabeth um and and so that's how it all starts off and that's the reason and benjamin does kind of he is a little bit opposed but she uses her ways with food and with other things mm -hmm. to kind of convince him and entice him into the idea of you know let's have a picnic lunch when we go and all these nice kind of image this nice imagery surrounding food to to entice mm -hmm. him and to convince him but really the decision has already been made yes. by her and she's already made some calls to go and see mm -hmm. houses so you know um this is all surrounding food in in because they mm -hmm. have Davy who's who's a kid and this is a couple of questions I have for you because mm -hmm. he is um ring he is eating something called a ring a ding ring a ding oh ring -a, <laughs> a ring a ding cake, a -a -ding. Uh, cake? yeah it's a it's a yeah. uh, it's like a mass-produced uh pastry it, it's uh it's like a little chocolate cake and it's so you get it in, in a packet mm -hmm. and it's oh. dipped in chocolate and so then it, the chocolate kind of dries and then it can be packaged and you bite into it so that the, the chocolate, the melted chocolate sort of forms like a like a little bit of a crust over the chocolate cake. And They're, is that um, different from a Yankee doodle? Big, is it different from a what? A Yankee doodle. I, I, I have to embarrassedly admit that I do not know what a Yankee doodle is. Because he seems to be eating these prepackaged things. And I think in her mind, she's like, let's go to this house it's good it's the summer we can oh, yeah. relax it's got a garden it's got a, whatever and we'll do picnic lunches and things yeah. will be fresher you know yeah. fresh so yankee doodle is the same kind of thing as a ring ding it's okay a, it's another mass-produced uh cake that yes. has chocolate and vanilla frosting in it and i believe it has vanilla uh, frosting in the middle so yeah okay all of these were very uh very 70s types of food um you know, you I it, I don't even know if they make Yankee Doodles or Ring Dings anymore, but they make things like it's along the, the lines of like a Twinkie. I'm sure you know what a Twinkie is. Yeah, I've heard of Twinkie. Yes. Okay, Twinkie. Yeah, it's the same concept. It's a mass-produced uh, pastry or a cake. 
that's filled with some sort of uh, cream or frosting or something like that. Terrible for you. Tons of sugar, extremely mass produced. Like I, and they're, and you know, and under the right circumstances, they're absolutely delicious. You know, yes. like, like you, sometimes you just want something that's just really bad for you and you enjoy mm. every, every little bite of it. You're like, I know this is terrible for me and I don't care. I'm going to eat this ring ding and this Yankee doodle and going to enjoy every bite of it. But after a while, you're as like, you know, Vanessa, as you know, I would never do something like that. No, nor I, nor I, nor, nor have I ever done anything like that. But let's not talk about the Kit Kats, the six so, Kat, six bar Kit Kat that I ate two weeks ago. I thought it was good. Does it? I didn't know it existed. Yes, um, I do. So listen, I so this this for me was really really important as I was transitioning from this idea of the big haunted house in Shirley Jackson and um going to this small apartment we have this kind of different type of horror which i call sunny sky horror this is by no means a real category it's just in my mind because it's like more sunshiny and bright and um but they are in a kind of city which is defined by her as hell so they're in queens and the space is not as she would want and i think this is a time where people have achieved something in their mm -hmm. careers where they can have a second home this is not the case for them no. so she's feeling in this some sort of um, well it's also frustration. very it's very it's all it's very class conscious as well she's very conscious of of their class of the class of the people who live around them she's a snob you can see it in the in the, you know the opening section of the book which fortunately was cut out of the movie because i found that to be incredibly boring i suppose it was meant to be there as sort of you know you know a character analysis of, of the three main characters but um you know she's not a terribly likable person and i think as time goes on you see that she's not a likable person particularly as they move into the house and she becomes more and more enamored of the house and she's more and more willing to let her husband go by the wayside like you know she continues continually rebuffs him for sex which is quite a you know a change from when they live in in that apartment in queens because she that's when she sort of uses sex to entice him into doing what she wants so it's a real interesting you know, 380 that she does on him. Um, but she also is becoming increasingly indifferent to her son. Um, she's very mean to Aunt Elizabeth toward the end of the book and the movie. Um, you know, poor Aunt Elizabeth is just this elderly lady and, and you know, everybody knows that there's something weird going on in that house. So you, you start to see, you know, and, and I I think you can make an argument that she's similar to Jack Torrance in the, in the sense that the hotel took him over and brought out these negative personality aspects in the same way that the, the Allardyce house brings out some many negative qualities in her. But mm, I think you, I think yes. you can't bring something out in somebody that wasn't already there. And I think yes. that's sort of the genius of of this this book and and King's book as well is you know these people are already fundamentally quite flawed, and you see that in Marion's character in the book in particularly. She's incredibly OCD when it comes to being clean, like she's a nag. She nags her kid. She nags her husband. She's like, she's like, did you pick that up? Did you pick that up? Did you do that? Did you clean this? You, and like, give it a break, lady. It's summer. Calm down. Or, you know, and as I as I probably should have said, calm the fuck down there. Oh, I don't think we want that on the table, do we, sweetheart? Not on the pretty mahogany. Why don't you pour it and bring the bottle back to the kitchen? But there aren't any glasses. Well, there's a goblet. It's better than glass. It's silver. But I don't want a goblet. I, I want a glass. You heard what your mother said, baby. You were messing up her table. 
but there's a naivety to this whole thing yeah. and it it makes my it sometimes it hurts my heart because even in the shining there is a kind of optimism but and slash arrogance that there that this time it will be different that there is a reason why this will work out and there's a great joke at the beginning because aunt elizabeth says are you sure you want to take an old lady on your holiday not not knowing that there's an old lady in this house where they will be anyway um so the naivety is that or the arrogance of it is that the house is so cheap and they think that it's because there is a catch okay Mm-hmm. And that catches that there's this old lady they have to look after, but that they can deal with that a little bit like little, in, little do they know exactly a little bit like in the house of the devil, where that's again, I would say not an arrogance at all. That's kind of desperation where the protagonist is so in want and in need of money that she needs to to believe that, you know, it will be fine, even though she has this um, feeling in her in her gut that it won't be. And in fact, it isn't. Um, so I think here we see that there's a lot going on in terms of the complexity of the reasons that set them off on this journey and that allow them to accept the terms and that um and that and that again like the shining it gives a lot of depth and different layers to the to the story which i really really loved and i it just had me it had me so interested from the beginning and um it's the type of writing as well that gets me really really involved in the in the plot another i think another interesting aspect of the food in this movie and it ties into what i had said before about how marion is is very basically used to kind of manipulating men into getting doing certain things or getting certain things either by sex or by food she sort of kind of continues that pattern once they move into the Allardyce house and even as things start to you know the house starts to regenerate but their family unit starts to disintegrate She's still kind of using that food thing. She's re- started to rebuff him from having sex, which I thought was interesting. But she continues to use food as like this bribery for him. At one point she tells him, you know, I have a pitcher of cold martinis and caviar waiting for you, for you and your aunt on the out by the pool. And, you know, she hasn't like really cooked them anything like decent in a while. She's been spending all her time cooking and taking care of Mrs. Allardyce and her husband's mad about it. So I thought that was, to me, that stood out really interestingly, but also the fact that she would choose to to do something kind of so like high-end, like caviar. Caviar is not cheap. It wasn't cheap in the seventies. It's certainly not cheap now. So like- Vanessa, I think I'm not part of the right circle because I don't, I don't really eat caviar. as a as a normal thing but I believe me in the 80s 70s 80s I was born in the 70s in the 80s I do remember people having caviar quite often so what what's going on with that I again it's a class status though it's a class and a status symbol oh look at us eating caviar I mean there are these very middle class people coming they came from this this not great house I mean he's got a decent job but they're, like I said, in the, in the beginning, in the beginning of the book, it's very clear from that opening section that she's a snob. She's a snob about their neighbors. She's a racist. She makes the racist comment about the guy who's the maintenance guy for their building. Their their building. She wants to be seen as being better than she is. And food, as we both know, is, you know, it can be a lot of different things in horror. And I think one of the things that it, it is in horror and goth, gothic, gothic literature, because this is very much a gothic novel as well, is it's a class indicator. She is using this food and this drink, maybe martinis, not so much, but martinis sort of herald back to this much more glamorous time. Like I think of the 1940s and Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack drinking martinis and, 
you know, big band era, that kind of thing. And caviar is just this very luxurious thing. I mean, if I was going to try and butter my husband up to get him in a, in a good mood, I don't, I mean, I don't know that I would do caviar. I might, you know, make him like nice appetizers and things like that, but I don't think I would do caviar. So, you know, she's really turning on the charm here. So she obviously yeah, exactly. has her reasons to get him back in a good mood. And towards the end, they're eating um, consomme and grapefruit, things that they probably wouldn't normally eat. So we see this big difference between before before the house and after the house. So things that they'd have before and things that they'd have after. And there is a line, and I think this ties in with what you were saying about their character. So there is some of that in that kind of not um, evil, but kind of this darker side to them from the beginning. And even the idea of property and the house, you know, in the flat where they're in, in Queens, um, Benji is really annoyed with their neighbor playing the piano and it makes everything shake. And it nearly feels like the copper pans are shaking. And even then you get a sense that every house is alive in some way. And it's alive with people's frustrations, with their feelings, with their relationships, with how they talk to each other. So moving to this other house, which is evil anyway, and it's just ready to be evil mm -hmm. and to welcome them in, into their into that evil pit of, of stomach that it has and swallow them up. You know, they take that with them. And I think we have more of a focus in the film on Benji's um, story and his side of things. Yeah. Whereas the book is very much more focused on Marion's. Would, would you say that's correct? Yes, definitely. Ben, ben sort of is the um, sort of the primary character in the movie because they get so much into into his psyche. They talk about the the the, the chauffeur, the limo driver driving the hearse, and you know, and, and it, much of the movie I think is told from his his point of view, you know, he, he's always walking around looking at this house as, as the house continues to regenerate itself. He can't believe what he's seeing. And he, you know, he, he's the, probably the most rational one of all of them because Marion very much just accepts it. You know, she's initially kind of, oh, this is mysterious, this is weird, whatever. But she's not disturbed by it, which is, is that to me is like a, a clue right there. Marion should be disturbed by this. I mean, this is a house coming to life around her like she find remember that room she finds with all of the silver and the gold dishes yes, and the gold them? i mean i would be very nervous if i came across a, a room full of gold and silver dishes in a house that i was taking care of i'd be like this is insane like anybody could walk in and steal this stuff why why are these things here you know why were they left to our to our care to our in our charge that's very disturbing so Yes. And you mentioned the fridge scene already. It's like there's some, it's like she has a feeling I am owed this. This is what I deserve because I've been cleaning and tidying and cooking for people. And I deserve to have this in my life. So they're crazy, are they, darling? So they're weird, huh? Yeah, well, this is the kind of crazy I can live with. Hey. Got him. Benji in front of the child. Look, I'll see about Mrs. Allardyce's lunch, okay? And you guys fix a nice spread of celery down. Marvelous! Listen to me. I always said he had celery. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's nearly owed to her, and I... And I think we get that feeling from from how she approaches everything, and and she's happy to feed the house and to clean feeding in the sense of cleaning and and making it look nice, and and it looks too nice all of a sudden. Suddenly, the carpets are looking newer and the paint is looking fresher, yeah. and and 
she manages to fix the clocks that the grandfather clock wasn't working and literally time had stopped but they managed to get it going again they managed to get mm -hmm. body working again so um the whole idea of um them being food and sustenance for these walls um comes to life and we get that in um as well in hunt for the hundreds hall with the little stranger yeah and as we said with the haunting of hill house and really there are two um, and this is what Stephen Graham Jones says in the introduction of the book. Um, there are two types of haunted house story. There's either the haunted house, which is like a stage for the ghost to perform on, or there's yeah. the house as an entity itself that it wants to swallow you and kill you. And burnt offerings is this second um, type of haunted house. So there's a really horrible scene and I was hoping it would be because I watched the film first and then read the book yeah, I yeah. was hoping it wouldn't be as brutal in the book but the swimming pool scene is quite brutal hey you want to see me swim And just to go back about what you were saying, when Marion's, you know, she should be more aware and in control. This is one scene where, again, she's been kept inside the house. She doesn't have that much power. Only towards the end, we see a brief voice in her, within her body, crying out to Benji saying, help me, you know, help. But really, she's not aware and she's not conscious of what's happening. No. This is like she's a woman inserted in the structure of patriarchy, unable to break free. This is just a metaphor for that. Like she's within the walls of a system and everything is happening outside. Aunt Elizabeth is out there um, who is decaying before everyone's eyes. <laughs> Such a fun, loving older woman. And now, you know, she couldn't suddenly couldn't walk and couldn't talk properly anyway in the swimming had to, pool cut, scene, had to cut back on her had to cut back the gin and her martini they make a big deal about that she's like i'm gonna have three quarter three quarters vermouth and one quarter gin now it's like this big thing like i have to you know cut back on my on my uh, my martini there it's really funny yeah it, it yeah it is and, and i think the, the the book and the movie itself also like are, are kind of a treatise on just consumerism in general and consumption in our society and and the things that we put on pedestals, you know, houses and wealth and class and money and position. And they're all just this, this facade and, and beneath well, we, it, you scratch the surface and you, you uncover all this, this horror and this, this terror. Yes. Well, she comments on how Marion comments on how things aren't looked after. And it is a bit like this idea of consumerism where we're just consuming new things and throwing them away before they even get old, but they have, they keep, you know, Aunt Elizabeth, by the way, she's not that old. She's 73, 74, which I think not is old quite young. <laughs> she make her look really old in the film, but I don't think she's really, you know, that old. Um, well, now it wouldn't be considered that old. So the, there are two scenes near the water which are interesting. And I wanted to ask you if you thought you knew why, because I don't, um, why they happen near the water. So the 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 Benji and Davy incident and then the Marion and Benji incident all happen kind of near the pool. Mm -hmm. What is it about the water, do you think? Is there anything there? I mean, it's possible you could think of the water as sort of a conduit um, of, of the house trying to get into Ben because Ben is a very logical, 
calm, responsible, and you can see that both in the movie and the book. He's very level-headed. He's very down to earth. He doesn't believe in ghosts. He doesn't believe. In fact, he's the one that questions the house. Like, why are they letting us? Why are they letting us stay in this house for seven hundred dollars for the entire summer? I mean, that, that's three months. That's unheard of. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he's very much set up as the character who is going to be the antagonist to the house. And I think possibly that the water, like I said, is, is some type of a conduit to getting to him, breaking down his barriers, maybe. Um, you know, because a swimming pool in many ways is kind of comforting, like a bathtub, like you're surrounded by water. It's like going back to the womb in a way, you know, it's comforting. You know, you, I, so that's, that's the only thing I can think of because generally in horror or even in, in like folklore, and you think about things like bodies of water, bodies of water tend to be the thing that the evil cannot pass. And I'm thinking specifically of the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the first movie when uh arwen is taking frodo to the elves to because he's been stabbed by one of the ring wraiths and it's this is the movie not the book and so she's racing through that forest and she's got him on horseback and she crosses that body of water and she tells the the ring wraiths to come and claim him and then they start to come across the water and the water just rises generally though you know generally that's what the concept is and you also have the concept of like the river sticks in Greek mythology and only certain people can pass it. Only the dead can pass things like that. So water has some interesting connotations and it can sometimes have what might be what might be considered opposing connotations. You know, water, mm. water is life. Water is this water is that. But water also can represent death. So it's, it's part of, I think, the overall dichotomy that we see in that house. Ironically, that house is coming to life by causing destruction and death. And um, there are these two episodes that happen are very violent. So the first one is that Benji and Davy are just messing around in the swimming pool and things get out of hand. And Davy doesn't actually know how to swim, so he's not meant to go in the deep bit. But Benji plays with him a little bit too roughly and then starts getting violent and it's a very scary scene. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is between um, uh, Benji and Marion where they start kissing and she asks him to stop, but he doesn't. And she feels uncomfortable being with him around the house. It's nearly like the house is a second uh, person, kind of person in their relationship, the third person in their relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, I noticed that a lot more emphasis was made in the book about a certain humming that she hears as she's approaching with the trays of food to bring them up to the elderly woman, um, she can hear a humming from within. And I don't know if we hear that in the film. I don't remember hearing no. the humming. I may be wrong. But in the book, it's a there really big any, thing because no... it, it's soothing to her. It's attractive and it's soothing. And um, and so, yes, I found that really interesting. I, th- I agree with you. No, the hum is not a thing in the movie. I think it's just too subtle. Mm, probably yeah. why it wasn't included. But, you know, because the book is so much in every character's head. So that's something like a hum. You can understand Well, that that's that's weird. That's odd. And that is kind of a and it is kind of one of those very subtle things, because you think about houses and and they all houses all make noises in different ways. They settle, especially old big houses. You know, there might be, you know, the humming of the refrigerator or something like that. So but they never really get into that in in the movie at all. Yes. It's just very focused on the surface of it. Yeah, it is interesting, yes. isn't it? Yeah. 
and it's a lot of yeah sorry go ahead no 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 i was just going back to kind of what i was talking about before you know with the symbolism of the house and the theme of of just consumerism and i think you see that reflected in in we talked about that already with the food with the caviar the martinis you know those are those are you know those those are foods and drink that are commonly perceived to be somewhat like high high end upper class sort of thing but the other yeah. thing that struck me was the scene when they first get to the house and they find all that that bounty in the refrigerator is very reminiscent of uh the shining when they go into yes. the pantry and they find all that food here so i'll i'll read the the passage yes the, sh the shelves were packed with food all of it she pointed out fresh specially laid in for them there was a large cooked chicken and a strawberry pie and several several bottles of champagne chilling and when she grabbed his hand and took him into the pantry, he saw shelves laden with canned goods and liquor and soft drinks, and the freezer as well was packed with steaks and roasts. She waved the damp note she had found in the refrigerator. All ours, she said, look. Compliments of Roz and brother, the note said. Use it all, please. There's enough food in here for the whole summer, Marion said. So I thought that was a, an, a, I, just a great, a great little setup as well. A, a little, and you know, you kind of, and it is very reminiscent of the, the scene in The Shining where Dick Halloran is taking Wendy and Danny through the kitchen and, you know, making the observation that this food's got to last you the entire winter because, you know, you're not, uh, there's going to be a point where you can't leave to go get milk and fresh fruit and fresh vegetables and stuff. So you're going to have to make this stuff last. So it's funny how she says, you know, it's enough to last us all summer. And isn't it exciting when you go to an Airbnb or somewhere and there's like, oh, a bottle of something or some fruit or some chocolate. And you think that's so nice. It's a nice mm -hmm. gesture. Imagine opening a fridge and there's all the foods that you've ever wanted that you probably don't buy in your own home. So that was the kind of feeling that they probably had. Yeah. So I could feel their excitement. And a lot of her anxiety and excitement is expressed through food, I thought, with Marion mm -hmm. at least. So, for example, if she's having a fight with Benji and often they're having quite intimate, convoluted discussions that you don't know where they're going to end. And I kind of like that about this book. It's a very realistic way of looking at relationships and that they talk everything through. A lot of the time um, she shows her reaction to Benji and to Davy through how she is with food. So, for example, there's a scene where they're eating sandwiches and um you know someone doesn't like shrimp or someone doesn't like something else and she snaps at them and, and she's talking through the food grabbing the sandwich giving them you know this is she's like an like her arms are tentacles that are always looking to give out something which is selfless really it's not for her everything she does is for them and so finally she's in this house and feeding the older woman is feeding herself and she gets to yeah. sit down in this nice sitting room and she has by the end of it a really nice dressing gown some beautiful gold slippers she's doing her hair and dressing in a way that she no normally wouldn't at home and um she's got all these lovely pictures that she keeps looking at mm -hmm. in the frames and she kind of feels very connected to them and she doesn't understand why yeah and um, obviously these pictures are telling a story of their own because they are the former residents of the house that exactly the, the there former, as well. The former, the former, uh, the former food, the former food yes. of the house. Yes. No, I, that's a, that's actually a favorite, uh, a favorite passage as well. Um, and it ties in with the, the whole idea of consumption, you know, the house is consuming them and she's consuming, she's consuming the food that's meant for Mrs. Allardyce. Um, let me yes. read the, let me read the passage. Cause I really love it. It's, it's, it's written very beautifully. The gown rippled with the movement of her hands. She moved away from the door, lifted a small cylinder of gold-tipped matches from the table, 
and lighted the candles in the bronze holders and all the other candles in the room. She turned off the lamp and stood spellbound by the serenity and the dazzling beauty of the room. The wing chair and the silver tray glowed in front of her and before she realized what she was doing, she had sat down and brought the tray closer to herself. She unfolded the napkin and reached for the silver knife and fork. The presence directing her hands and imposing itself on her will was almost palpable and she felt no desire to resist or question the force. She cut into the meat and in a moment, all she was aware of was the hum and the incredible fragrance of roses rising all around her. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you it can feel the scent. Even though it's yeah. terrifying at the same time. Like she yeah. knows there's something taking her over and she knows that, you know, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's, it, and, mm. it's, and she just is so like, okay with it. She's so comfortable with it. There's not any sense of terror. Like I would be terrified, but no, she was, she's like, oh, I'm wearing this beautiful gown. I'm going to eat Mrs. Allardyce's food. Nothing to be scared of. Nothing to be scared of. I just love that she is a robot by the end of it. She doesn't know what she's doing anymore. No. And the old woman is invisible. Really, no one ever sees her. I mean, a few times Benji tries to go into the room and Marion's like, no, don't you dare. Marion! What has she been doing up there? Getting her tray. You see her? What you like? She's asleep. I'll see her later. Mm -hmm. But the old woman is invisible. She's not there. And that's kind of symbolic of these people who consume without thinking about their future. There is no, there is no afterwards for them. No. And so she personifies the house really and she compares it to marrying ben as well she says the house was what she'd always wanted so it becomes more important to have the house than to have ben in fact one starts to think that perhaps the only reason that there are marriages at times is you want the whole package you want the home you want the kids you want everything but you don't take each individual as and for what they are um, and so that kind of modifies a certain behavior and you become, you become that house, you become the function of that house. Yeah. And that also involves, you know, cooking and cleaning and especially cooking three meals a day. I mean, you accept a holiday home, you would accept to cook three meals a day for someone you don't even know and you can't see. She's doing it anyway for others. Why not mm -hmm. do it for this old lady? You know, yeah, that's how exactly. bad it is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> that's how terrible it is yeah. anyway. So um really and, there's and no I love fairness it, in that I, yeah and then kind of go and riffing off of what you just said you know it's it i love how it kind of subverts the 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 traditional concept of 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 what we think of as home you know home is the heart home is home is where the heart is and literally you know she finds the heart of the of the house up in that attic but it's also interesting to consider as well that you know what do houses represent in general they represent safety and security they represent the pl one place on earth where we control who enters and who comes in and, and what is done there. You know, our homes are our, our fortresses basically. And she becomes, she begins to really start seeing this house as being her very own as time goes on, you know, forgetting that, no, this house doesn't belong to us. This house belongs to the Allardyces and we're just caretakers here. And no, and, and, you know, she, that's, she starts and that I mean, have you noticed that there are those, it's those times in the book when either Benji or David or aunt Elizabeth kind of remind her of that, that she, she kind of her personality starts to change she doesn't want to be reminded that this is not her house you know she thinks she and, and she sort of be, starts to develop this certain sense of entitlement when she starts finding all of those those valuable dishes and those beautiful those beautiful trays and everything and even this there's that section in the book i don't recall that if it was in the movie i don't think it was but davy accidentally drops a crystal bowl 
He doesn't do oh it my on gosh. purpose. She goes crazy. She loses her damn mind. Like, my God, it's a bull. That you know, what I makes me so think. sorry for Davy between his dad going psycho and trying to drown him in the pool and his mother losing her mind over a crystal bowl. That poor kid. Because this is this is the whole symbology of this predicament that they're in, that you, you want something so badly for a reason. So you want to go to the summer house because you want to connect to your family, have a peaceful summer and have a nice time with them. But then once you have the things that you want, they're more important than the people that you're with and that you went to that house for you know that reason it doesn't matter anymore what yeah. matters matters are the things and she she goes into an absolute panic when she thinks the Allardyce is a back and in fact it's just Walker who is like like a caretaker um but as soon as he this this guy walks in and she's only ever met him with um Roz and brother the Allardyces so she asks him have they come as well you know do I she doesn't want to leave she's absolutely terrified of mm -hmm. leaving <laughs> And Walker comes in and looks around and says, hmm, this place is looking good. You know, he knows exactly what's going on. And you get that at the beginning. So that's I like the circularity of that, because when they come in, um, the brother, brother and Roz say something along the lines of, you know, children are very good for the house. And you're thinking, what does he mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> How can anything be good for the house? And well, so now, then you put yeah, and then you realize, together. Well, yeah, because, you know, he's the youngest one. He's probably got the most juice that that house can absorb. Yes, exactly. It really does. And it really does absorb all of them in different ways in the end. Like Ben, poor thing, it, it like it hits him in his mind. You know, he, he's very he's very cognizant of everything going on around him. He knows that there's something wrong. And so it attacks him by giving him these horrible headaches, these debilitating head headaches that he has. It, you know, it attacks poor Davy. I don't know that it, you could say it attacks Davy in any way, but you it's obviously it's feeding off his life force. And then poor Aunt Elizabeth it's just sucking her the life literally right out of her. And then Marion, yes. of course, Marion is just being more and more gradually absorbed. And you see it because one of the subplots of this book is the, the color of her hair and the color yes. of Aunt Elizabeth's hair. The, like a big issue is made because she starts to go gray in this house and she's you know, very proud of her looks. There's a section in the book where she's looking at the mirror in the beginning and, you know, she's like, all you know, she's 35, which obviously you and I both know is not not an old, not a, not an old age at all. But she's Look. very she's very conscious of being 35 and she's very proud of her her colored hair her blonde hair and aunt elizabeth is proud of of her hair as well and so as, as they the longer they stay in that house the more that their hair but for both of them starts to go gray starts to thin and uh, benji even comments on it at one point which i'm like oh dude don't comment about your wife's hair color mm -mm. no bad idea bad bad idea her, her hair starts going gray and in the beginning Marion's touching it and thinking this is weird I've got two or three strands of gray hair then suddenly it's a lot a lot more and she starts liking it she starts enjoying that she feels that way because it's like she's becoming someone else that she recognizes now mm -hmm. she doesn't care about Aunt Elizabeth dying you know Davy's not well either then they leave she doesn't care by then she just wants to be in the house and doesn't feel anything for anyone anymore. No. That's what she wants. She wants the house. Look, Elizabeth is dead. Doesn't that mean anything to you? It means a great deal to me. Davy? Marion, I am not sure that anything means a great deal to you except this bloody house. Do you understand that? Well, that isn't true. Then how do you account for your absence at Elizabeth's funeral? You know alone. Love that, and it's very creepy in a very 
in a very intimate way that I get the yeah. same feeling from reading something like Rosemary's Baby that I get for from this and the way that she handles things and the way that she um is so proud of anything to do with food and with the kitchen and with cleanliness and the home and there is a pride in that because it means that you know how to take care of the place you live in and the people that you are surrounded by Mm -hmm. and I like that and then it goes too far (laughs) as as these things tend to do yeah no and I can understand that and I think I think the book was written specifically to showcase that mindset of, of pride, pride in pride in place, pride in ownership in you and, and what underlines pride in ownership, you know, is the sense of, you know, I have something that somebody else doesn't have. Look at this beautiful house that I'm living in. Look at these beautiful gold and silver dishes that I have. Look at look at the swimming pool that I have that, that nobody else has. Yeah. And the the misconception or in a way the the American dream of it, right? That that you had with the haunting of Hill House mm-hmm. as well where um, you know, and with Shirley Jackson's mm-hmm. life herself, because her husband um, was always resentful of the fact that Shirley Jackson was earning money and that um, she was working and she was a writer. And he was actually very controlling of her, her money and everything that she earned. So oh, yeah. um, you well, get this how idea. Dare, that... How dare his wife make more money than him? How dare she? How dare she and have so... the audacity to be more talented than him? So you have this at some point. <laughs> the idea of buying a house and having property and it kind of settles things in the world of how how to be how to be a man really mm-hmm. and so the fact that they are in a situation where they can't say that they own their own house and they are living on borrowed on something borrowed because this is on the idea of credit i guess and that they're doing something for this family that allows them to stay in a house that they can't really afford and they know it, but they're yeah, living in this way is just very much reminiscent of that time, you know, the post post World War Two. Yes, very I much think, so. and, and the whole credit thing and you know, you couldn't and it was part of being part of the American dream was to put money into this system because then, you know, you were financing something which was which was good for America as a, as a whole. So this is a ruined dream and we see it through how the house is decaying and the fact that they are through their own bodies and their own work, work physical work, Marion is uplifting it and is, is making it, is rejuvenating it mm-hmm. through their own blood. It's a blood offering. It is. It's a blood sacrifice. Yes. But it does, And it does make you wonder about what, you know, what, obviously, as we had talked about, earlier, you know, the title of the book, Burnt Offerings, a burnt offering is something that is sacrificed to the gods, usually a human, almost always an animal. And it's it's meant to curry favor with the whatever god your your religion or your culture believes in. Burnt offerings were a were a big thing in the uh, the Jewish temple. Um, you know, in, in the Bible, biblical times, you read so much about burnt offerings. I mean, there's the story of Isaac and Abraham, when uh, Isaac goes to, is it Abraham? Yes, and Abraham goes to kill his son and the angel stops his hand and he leaves a burnt, he leaves a burnt offering in place of his son. I mean, that, that to me, that's what always sticks out in my mind when I think of burnt offerings. But, it, it, but it, it implies that something is burned, something is immolated. And the concept of something being burned and immolated, particularly a house, also has the connotation of cleansing it. And you don't see that in this, in this book or the movie there. The house is not burned down at all. There's no reference to any kind of 
anything being burnt. There are, I mean, obviously the Allard, the, um, the Rolfs are meant to be the sacrifice to the house itself. But I just thought that was an interesting turn of phrase, burnt offerings. Um, yes, and it is the ultimate sacrifice, isn't it? Because you're burnt, normally it's a whole animal. So you'd either burn something like, well, something like a lamb, actually, which is mentioned at the end of the book when mm -hmm. um, well, Aunt, Aunt yeah, Elizabeth very... is still alive. And um, and so Marion asks if um, she wants some lamb for dinner. I think this is one of the last times. And then uh, we don't see Aunt Elizabeth again because no. because she dies. So it is like the ultimate sacrifice. And you're you're burning the whole carcass of an animal. So it's then inedible. You know, it's not it can't be eaten for any reason it is just a complete um kind of sacrifice as a burnt offering so it is yeah un un it is complete submission and i think it's it kind of symbolizes the seriousness of intentions you're meant to not have sustenance from food because you've burnt everything you're meant to have sustenance from that as a sustaining power in itself. So you're meant to get energy from the act of the ritual, which is why it's so interesting that Marion is very ritualistic in everything that she does. And it's three times a day. And she has to give Mrs. Allardyce, you know, an egg for breakfast, soup for lunch, and it's a protein and a vegetable for dinner. And that's it. Mm -hmm. She does it every time. So um, there is a ritual and she becomes part of those rituals, I think. And yeah. through those rituals, she reinforces the oppression, the oppression on her own self, you know, as well, mm -hmm. as well as everyone else. Yeah. And she is sort of the one that in the end is sort of the the mover of everything in the move in the movie and the book. You know, she's the one that ultimately makes the decision. She's going to sacrifice going back to the burnt offerings concept. She's going to sacrifice her family to this house. And it's much more explicitly stated and spoken in the book. Um, in the movie, you know, I, probably they they changed it to have much more of a dramatic ending. But in the in the movie, she finally is able to break break away the spell when she sees her son drowning in the pool. She goes and saves him, and she realizes I have to get my family away from here. So you know, obviously that doesn't it doesn't work in either the book or the movie. You know, in the in the movie, she goes back upstairs to check on Mrs. Allardyce, and she is absorbed by Mrs. Allardyce in the house. Um, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty awful, but you know, Marion herself is not, as I, I think we mentioned in the beginning, she's not that much of a likable character anyway. I mean, I much preferred Ben, but you know, she doesn't, you know, she basically, you know, from the get go that she's already putting the house in the place of importance in her life. It's more important than her husband. It's more important than her kid. Obviously it's much more important than, than Aunt Elizabeth is. And so she doesn't really have any strong sense of she's not really guided by any kind of morals, you know, like the only her big thing is like, how is she going to get over feeling guilty? Um, you know, what I mean, how am I going to stop feeling this? And she has that scene in the book where she's, you know, telling herself, burn it out, burn it out, burn it out. She's trying to burn out the thought of this house. but She doesn't really want to. You can tell, like, you know, she really doesn't want to leave it. She really doesn't because and I think that that's why in the end she goes back to check on uh, Mrs. Allardyce is because she doesn't really deep down inside she doesn't want to leave she wants to stay there in that house and this gives her one last excuse to go upstairs and ben of course follows her and you know he is you know she kills him by pushing him out the window falls in the car it's a horrific scene in the movie she she's been absorbed by the body of mrs allardyce she looks old and just horrible very she, violent horrible yeah. witch. pushes him out the window ben lands on the car 
Davy is still in the car. He sees his father's dead and broken body land on top of it. And he loses his mind, freaks out, jumps out of the car, starts to run down the driveway. And the house, because the house is constantly shifting and rebuilding itself, a piece of the uh, a piece of the, the brick falls down on him and kills him. So, yeah, very, uh, very... <laughs> Very cheery ending. What can I say? <laughs> but I mean, as it, all the films and it. books that we look at, <laughs> I know we we just love our cheerful books. But I, I like it because it you know it has that you know that that subtext about you know the, the importance people the importance that people place on things and houses and it's about class and money and like we were talking about position and how some people in our society and it's very timely because we see a lot of that happening in our society now where people put more importance on their homes, how expensive your house is, how does your house look compared to somebody else? Um, how do you know, how does this house make me look? Does this house make me look like I'm wealthy? Does it make me look like I'm classy? And as opposed to putting the importance on people, your family. Um, and you can you can actually compare them in an interesting way with the with the with the Allardyces because the Allardyces they do put their family before the house. I mean, the house and the family are on equal footing, basically. You know, they're they're obviously much more devious about it, but no, they're like, yeah, you know, the house is important. So is our mother, they're kind of intertwined. And so, you know, they are sort of in a way, in an interesting way, they are, you know, a little bit better than the than the Rolfs or at least Marion in that sense. At least they, they, they're upfront about what their priorities are, the house and the mother, because they're basically one and the same, aren't they? They don't, the, the, it's never explicitly explained what the house is, but obviously the house is, is sentient on some level and feeds off of human energy. Yes, and a lot of, yes, human energy, but I wonder about something else as well, and I wanted to ask you what you thought mm -hmm. about this. I wonder if it also feeds specifically off being maternal, being a mother. Um, so the memory of the maternal is nearly presented as a threat. You've got Roz and brother who refer to mother all the time. And then you have Marion as a mother herself, who also starts talking about feeding mother. And um, this idea that there's an automatic kind of taking over via the repetition of Marion's movements connected to food, obviously, um, that we associate to being maternal and to, to maternity because you're feeding something. So the idea of um, this mother who isn't always necessarily um, benevolent, but who can be very negative and very dangerous and has got people in her web. And towards the end, it's all about their mother and becoming their mother. Um, and at the end, there's this one sentence and I, it was it really surprised me. And it said, brother rose from his wheelchair to celebrate the moment, you know, the moment that they'd managed to get back to that stage of of having their mother back. Yes. Because she is going to stay there and she is now their mother. Is that a good interpretation according to what you know in terms of, you know, the, one, the reasons that there is a frequent reference to time and to motherhood and to mm -hmm. and to the maternal and feeding obviously yeah i know i think that's a very good a very good analogy and a very good way to look at it as well um the house obviously is their mother and they are doing everything in their power that they can to keep their mother with them and to keep their mother going and that's i think is sort of personified in all of the pictures of the house that you see at the beginning and then at the end you see the house at different stages 
You see it at its at its zenith, it looking beautiful. You see it when it's starting to kind of break down a little bit. And so it, that that tells you right there. It, it, it's like it, it does refer to the cyclical nature of time, you know. And we've talked a lot about that in in the shining as well. You know, time is not time is not necessarily this kind of linear, going straight. You know, a straight line here. You know, time is a circle, and it's happening. These different things are happening all around us at any given time, at any given place. So. I think you could argue that in, within that house, within the Allardyce house, you know, there is a sense of of time being cycled around and around and going through this this cycle of death and regeneration. And it's almost, you know, kind of, you know, Christian in a way, the, the concept of death and rebirth, death, yes. sacrifice, death and rebirth. It's it's a fascinating concept. You think of that, that trilogy of concepts, you know, the sacrifice, and we all have to make sacrifices in life for various things. Obviously in this book and the movie, the idea of a sacrifice is a little more extreme, but it sacrifices a sacrifice. You make a sacrifice in order to get something in return. In this case, you make the sacrifice of the, of the people. The people die, give their lives, give their life force, and the life force goes back into the house and the house regenerates. Yes, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I I love that idea. And it's not obviously the first film that I've seen that employs this idea um, but it's probably one of the earliest um, examples of it isn't it mm-hmm. and um, yes and as I said at the beginning like it must have influenced so many people to produce similar similar concepts in different different facets of, of of those concepts but but there is a sadness and a desperation in this story it's not just greed it's not just wanting something for no reason there's a sense of entrapment and there's a real enthusiasm and glee when she is able to dig into her grapefruit with a silver spoon and it's not just a normal spoon you know normal whatever steel spoon when she opens the closet and there's gold and the you know there are tablecloths and candelabras and beautiful finally this is her dream come true Mm -hmm. this is but what does she have to give up in order to to get to this and yeah and that's where the real story is and I, I feel that in perhaps more modern renditions of the same idea you have this is a little bit lacking it's a bit less obvious and a bit less clear um and it's probably more about uh the theatricality of it and yeah well class, but, but this is the, sad, the, the sadness to it class means something different in this in this day and age than it did back then you know that the people don't put as much importance on things like dishes and glassware and crockery and having fancy dishes for a dinner party and drinking martinis you know and having caviar things like that That, those those things are not necessarily given the same level of importance that they were back then and i think that's that you know represents a, a significant culture shift in you know what what we see is important and you know consumerism as we know is alive and well and a major part of our of our culture and so you see consumerism in different ways nowadays. So I agree with you that, you know, if this movie were, were to be remade now, I think that the focus would definitely be something different within the house. The house obviously is going to be the focus of it because the house is the the reason for everything. It's the it's the, the pinnacle around which everything revolves. But I, I it would be interesting to think about how this movie would be remade now and what they would use as status symbols. You know, possibly mm, tech, yeah, you know, yeah. items of technology, fancy cars. Definitely are, not caviar. No, It'd probably be something else. Yeah, the like champagne the huge... would. The champagne would probably still be a a thing because champagne still has a a connotation of being classy. Because I know whenever I drink a glass of champagne, I think I'm very classy and elegant, and you know, 
even though I know I'm not, but I tell myself, look how classy I am with my champagne flute. Have you seen those huge croissants that are going around on TikTok and you no. dip them in? They're like the size of the size of more than my head, like my oh, whole God. body. And then you dip them into a cappuccino and, um, you know, that's quite trendy. Maybe we'd get one of those in a modern, in a modern that, viewing of this. You never know, a, a ginormous croissant, yeah. Well, de- people would def- people would be definitely posting about this house on uh, social media. That's for certain. As Stephen Graham Jones said, not everything that wants to eat us fe- fits neatly in a biology book. This is true. This house certainly doesn't. This house is at the top of its own food chain, and you know mm-hmm. it likes humans. So yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, but you know, and and obviously, and you, you made a good point earlier when you were talking about you know was the house specifically attracted to certain certain types of people, certain, you know, the maternal instinct. I think there's something to that. I think it's it's definitely drawn more to people with a certain instinct than others. It's obviously going to break down everybody in the family unit in the end, as it does here, but it definitely is is drawn to the person who is going to be the the caretaker. And, and in this case, possibly the person who is so drawn to these surface things, these dishes, these, you know, there's there's how many references to this in the book, I want to say there's got to be like six or seven references to the spode tureen that she takes Mrs. Allardyce's soup into. Uh, that struck me because I've always wanted to like have a, a fancy soup tureen. A tureen. Yes, I just, I, I they, but she, they refer, reference this spode tureen like many, many times. Here's an interesting little, uh, a little quote. Um, they are talking about Aunt Elizabeth. So he found Marion prepping Mrs. Allardyce's lunch tray in the kitchen. David's on the terrace, she said, with a book. He says it stinks, but he seems to be plugging away. The G.I. Joe was good for 20 minutes. How much did you pay for it? I forget. He told her about Aunt Elizabeth and Marion without any wasted motions. Hot soup into the blue spode bowl said, if I hurt her, I'm sorry. The fact is that she was in his room. And then it cuts, I'll skip a few of these paragraphs to Marion preparing the tray. She placed the bowl on a plate and moved them onto the silver tray, adding an immaculate white linen napkin and a silver spoon, which she held up to inspect. I mean... You know, this, con- this 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 conversation that she and her husband are having about something very important, you know, she's concerned that Aunt Elizabeth in, in kind of a senile moment accidentally went into her son's bedroom and, and inadvertently turned on the gas and tried to strangle him. And her husband's trying to explain to her what happened. And all she cares about is setting up the the blue spode soup tureen and, and the silver platter and the napkins. Yes, that's that's her focus, the dishes. It's what she's used to doing mechanically. So that's that's her that's where she feels most relevant and useful. Yeah, and there is a sadness in that, but also there is a satisfaction and in a way a bit of revenge as well, you know. Mm-hmm. But no one's to blame. Uh so it doesn't no. feel like that, that satisfying. Yeah. No, there really isn't a like it, that's what I thought was an interesting interesting aspect about the book is you don't really get a sense that the book, it's not necessarily an antagonist. The book is, the house is what it is in the book. It it, it has always been there, it always will continue. The Allardyces, or the, the, yeah, the Allardyces, you don't get a sense that they are necessarily malevolent or bad. They're just doing what they have to to keep mother and the house alive. You know, you don't get a sense that they're bad. But the movie, the two characters that played the, the brother and sister the male was played by a, a male, an actor named Burgess Meredith, who you know was around for many, many years. He was in the part. He was in the Rocky movies with Sylvester Stallone. He played one of his trainers. He's so bizarre in that movie. 
he's so weird and they're both so creepy you you don't get a sense of them being creepy in the book but in the movie no. like that house is weird those people are weird you can understand why ben is like uh wait a minute 700 bucks for the summer i don't think so yeah they should have just like, he has a, he has a sense he is less part he is less kind of taken by the by the dream of something Marion's more about the imagination, about dreaming about how things could be. And she's obviously stuck indoors a lot more. Ben isn't, you know, he's out and about. He comes home. He asks for his dinner. He gets handed a sandwich and a beer. You know, you see that right at the beginning. So he's not that invested in and doesn't see the utility of this sense of freedom that the house obviously want, gives is able to give Marion. And it's an entrapment and freedom at the same time. She says, well, seeing as I have to be trapped, I may as well be trapped in a gilded cage. Allie, I think we've covered everything in Burnt Offerings. The, uh, the, the fact that there are no, there literally are no Burnt Offerings in the book. That's number one. All the food references. There's a lot of food. And uh, just the whole idea of consumption as an overall concept and very much as a way of people living their lives. So I don't know about you, but I'm totally inspired to go and cook now. What do you think you're going to make? Well, more than cook, because to be honest, this has taken my appetite away slightly. I might make a cocktail. <laughs> and because they go on about martinis so much, I might make a Marion martini and put some special ingredients in it. Oh, do to, tell. To, re to rejuvenate myself instead oh, of, okay. of making myself look older. Okay. Are you going to put some of that uh, rancid chlorinated water from the pool? Maybe. And I'll call it Maison Martini. Oh, a rejuvenated ooh la la. house. Ooh, ooh la la. <laughs> What's about you? I think I'm going to make a strawberry pie. And I'll, I'll call okay. it the, the, the sad strawberry pie. I swear pie. to God, you say this every time. Are you going to make a strawberry pie? This isn't the first time. And I don't think I've seen you make a strawberry pie yet. I said it one time earlier and that was it. Okay. And it wasn't even a strawberry pie. It was supposed to be a strawberry dessert. And I dropped the ball. It wasn't out of pie. So there, give me a break. Well, I can't wait to not eat. I it actually think I what I might do food. is I might make a champagne strawberry pie to, to combine the champagne and the strawberry pie in the refrigerator at the beginning of the book. See how neither of us would ever make anything with caviar, because. Yeah, it's, it's not that great, is it? It's just like this big, like, thing of salt. Like, no, no, I, I'm, I was never down with the with the fish eggs myself, so. Okay, well. I guess we know what we're making then. Okay, that's great. So we're, I can't wait to have your um, Marion Martini with the chlorinated water at the bottom to rejuvenate you. And I can't wait to have your strawberry pie. And champagne with, with a champagne sauce. Yes. Actually, I think I might macerate the strawberries in champagne. And on that note, I will see you soon. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And make sure to tune in for our next episode coming to you in two weeks. As always, stay spooky. Spooky.